have another great episode this week with James Rutolo. We have known each other for about 10 years. Thank you, LinkedIn, for reminding both of us. His career really shows an interesting progression. His work starting in SIU and moving to tech and then consulting has been great to watch. James is a real pay it forward colleague, and I think you will enjoy listening to him talk about how he has really moved forward in his career. So let's get started. We have another great episode today, and I want to introduce you to James Rutolo. And James and I connected, I don't know, more than 10 years ago, don't you think? I think that's just a little over 10 years now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to LinkedIn, we know exactly when we connect in. Okay, we're going to get this episode started with a few little word association speed round. Um, what do you think of when you hear the word fraud? Job security. <laughs> like that. Oh my God. Okay. What about ethics? Oh, challenging. Challenging. Oh, okay. A lot of people have challenges with ethics these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do a word of the year? Uh, a word of the year. I don't, but I can tell you that uh, the first word that I use in Wordle every day is fraud. Oh, okay. So that's your word of the year. Yeah, that's, oh my my, gosh. that's my first word that I use, and it works out pretty well. Oh, okay. That's good. And then finally, um, who makes better embezzlers, men or women? Oh, I think uh, I think everybody brings their own special talents to the table, so I don't know that I can pick one. Oh, okay. You're being very, very politically correct. I like that. I like yeah, that. I like, I like to play both sides. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and since COVID, what is the best money you have spent? Like personally or professionally? Uh, so I actually bought a cabin uh, up in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. And our family gets to spend some time up there, which during COVID was a great place to get away from other people uh, and sort of uh, spend some time with nature. And so that turned out to be the, I think, the best thing that we've done. Oh, that, that, that truly is. That's, that is a great one. So yeah, I used to say, what's the best hundred dollars you've spent since COVID, but okay. I think your cabin maybe cost a little more than a hundred dollars. So. <laughs> a little, it was a little more than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So James, give the fraudish audience your sort of background. Yeah, happy to. So, uh, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm a, I'm a fraud consultant. Uh, I've been a certified fraud examiner and fraud investigator for over uh, almost 25 years now, I guess. Um, and I started out my career in the insurance industry uh, doing fraud investigations, and I've kind of moved through roles in technology and analytics, and uh, and now into consulting. But um, I spent you know, even back in my undergraduate days, uh, you know, focused on fraud and actually have a degree in what we then called economic crime investigation. And so I, I knew I wanted to be an anti-fraud practitioner from the beginning. Uh, and I've really followed, um, you know, a winding path since then through uh, some different roles in the anti-fraud space. But uh, most of my work these days is really focused around fraud risk management. So helping organizations look at uh, their different types of fraud risks, make sure they're capturing those properly, and then evaluating what sort of controls they have to mitigate those risks. And uh, oftentimes that will uh, that will include us helping implement some new controls when they find that they have a bunch of gaps. So, uh, so that's been what's keeping me busy lately. And um, we have a couple of 
sort of late breaking news stories for fraud that I'd like to get your opinion on. What do you think about the whole um, SBF and FTX? Have you been following that pretty closely? Uh, a little bit. Been uh, been reading about it. And so that one's particularly interesting from a risk management perspective in that, it, you know, it seems, um, you know, those companies that that um, that SBF is uh, affiliated with did not do a whole lot of risk management. <laughs> um, and, you know, also, it seems that some of the people that were uh, were either employed at the company or were advisors that did have a risk management focus um, did not stay very long, either because they saw the problems uh, or because they were kicked out. And so um, I think it's a, you know, really a cautionary tale for a bunch of reasons, but especially from a fraud risk management perspective. Um, and, it, you know, when we think about uh, you know, pick a pick a, a component of the fraud triangle to look at, right? But you could see some rationalization there of, hey, you know, this isn't really fraud. I'm, I'm you know, moving this money, you know, between companies, and you know, it's for legitimate purposes and things like that. But, um, you know, we get back to the, your uh, your comment about ethics. Um, you know, looking at uh, sort of the way in which that was done. Um, and the way in which some of those funds were used, I mean, the conflicts of interest should be obvious to pretty much anybody who's looking at those things, right? So, um, so yeah, really, really fascinating and unfortunate uh, example. And then another story, which is kind of even more recent, is um, the young woman who sold her um, student loan company, Frank, to J.P. Morgan. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so in that particular example, um, you know, she was looking for an exit for her startup, right, and, and being able to, to cash out by selling to another large company, uh, which um, ultimately was JP Morgan. And so um, her, in order to justify the valuation that she was looking for, um, she had a, a challenge because she didn't have enough customers. Uh, and so the solution to that challenge was, you know, not uh, actually growing the business, but you know, reaching out to a data scientist and hiring him to invent some uh, some customers and, and putting that data uh, into their business applications. And so, um, you know, this is another example from a risk management perspective of how important it is to do adequate due diligence. Uh, and so you wonder, you know, how much due diligence did J.P. Morgan, you know, really do in this scenario if, you know, most, the vast majority of the customers didn't really exist. Um, and so, and they only found out after they had acquired this company and then tried to send marketing emails to all of the customers of, of Frank and, uh, and all, you know, almost all of the emails bounced because those accounts weren't real. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, really, really kind of shocking um, at the scope and scale, you know, that people are willing to go to now um, to commit fraud. And in this particular case, it's even more fascinating because there's so much documentation, right? They had access to all of her email and all these communications back and forth with this data scientist that she hired to falsify all of these records. So um, I know that that her attorney has come out with some approaches and, and uh, some justifications uh, and some excuses. Uh, I'm not sure that any of those will uh, will be successful, but um, it's really a, kind of a shocking example in terms of the scope and scale. Yeah. Yeah. And I had on recently um, Phil Davis and Katie Intrader from at data and they do email and they're like 20 minutes. It would have taken us yeah. like, you know, and you're <laughs> just sure. like, duh, you know, 20 minutes. Really? Uh, it's, so 
I feel in this case, and there's, and I haven't read everything, but I've read, I've read quite a bit in the back and forth between each sides of the attorney is that there was probably pressure from somewhere higher to just do the deal. Certainly there, there can be those things that do happen, right? And the, um, people do cut corners as a result of that. But um, I read a, a great piece in the New York Times about this case. And, you know, they were just running down some simple math. And so when you look at, you know, how many customers they had, um, their market penetration, you know, would have had to have been, you know, spectacular. They've got nearly 100% of all, you know, college applicants, uh, you know, as customers already, which is, you know, which is very unrealistic, even for, you know, a, a highly successful company. So, um, so it really didn't even pass the smell test for anybody that knows the space. And so, while certainly there, there could have been a lot of pressure and people were moving quickly, um, you know, again, a little bit of due diligence probably would have uncovered the fact that this is a little sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know lawyers don't ma- do not do math. And yeah. like, I mean, it's just, yeah, the math of it didn't equate. And sometimes it's something really simple, like, you know, that kind of is the unraveling of something. I just think a lot of times it's something yeah. really, really simple. Um, yeah. 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 This one will turn out to be email. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was very timely that I did the episode with uh, at data and Phil and Katie. So, um, yeah, now you, um, I'm going back through your career a little bit because you did SIU work and, um, and then you transitioned. You, we talked a little bit before you've kind of had three stages of your career. What was your favorite part of SIU work? Oh, wow. I think um, the thing that I miss most is really, you know, being kind of involved directly in the investigations. Um, you know, that, of course, for uh, for a lot of us in this line of work is uh, is the fun part, right? Being able to, um, you know, to catch the bad guy. Um, and so, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. I, you know, I think if I can go back a little bit uh, even earlier, I knew I wanted to be in this space when I was in junior high school. So I I, um, I entered a like a competition or a raffle of some kind, I guess, to become a chief of police for the day uh, in my oh. local town. And so I won, and I was excited, and I got the opportunity to shadow the chief of police, and uh, and that was a great experience. He was, um, you know, he was very. Um, generous with his time and, and showing me lots of different components of his job. And so I knew from then on, I wanted to uh, to study criminal justice when I got to college. And I pursued that, um, you know, through school and, and ended up going to uh, Utica College, which is now Utica University. Um, many uh, listeners may be familiar with their, uh, their fraud management programs. And so, um, you know, Got that degree, um, you know, moved into the uh, the insurance industry um, and got a job in SIU. And I've had the luxury of having some really great uh, bosses throughout my career. And uh, at the uh, the Hartford Insurance Company was where I, I started in the SIU business. Uh, a gentleman named Jack McGoldrick was my supervisor, and he ran the SIU operation and took a, uh, a risk, really, in hiring a young kid with not a lot of experience. And uh, he was a tremendous mentor for me and, and taught me a lot about investigations. And uh, Jack uh, was a retired state police captain from the Connecticut State Police and just had a, a wealth of knowledge and experience. 
Um, and I'm, uh, he's now retired long since retired, but I'm happy to say that uh, we keep in touch and we still go to dinner every few months and, um, you know, we're, uh, known each other now for, uh, for over 20 years. So, um, so really enjoy the SIU, uh, work just because of, you know, all of the types of investigations that we got into. We, um, we specialized in, uh, in long-term disability insurance claim frauds. And so we worked with a lot of vendors that did surveillance work and captured people on video doing interesting things. Uh, and so probably my most famous example was a gentleman who said he was disabled from his job uh, because of carpal tunnel. He couldn't use a keyboard. He couldn't hold a pen uh, because of the severity of his carpal tunnel. So he was unable to work. Uh, and we were able to capture him on surveillance uh, in a rodeo. And so he uh, he actually took third place overall, did a great job, uh, you know, on a, a bucking Bronco, uh, holding on with no problem, even in spite of his alleged carpal tunnel. So um, so those were the types of, of investigations that we were involved in. And um, that job was sort of the uh, the springboard into the next phase of my career, which uh, we can talk about in a moment. But I got to take on a lot of the um, um, the technology and analytics responsibilities there as part of the SIU, and so um, helped implement a case management system for our investigators to track all their work, uh, leveraging you know network analytics software and you know data mining software, uh, and we had some really really sharp people at the insurance company uh, that were doing predictive analytics back then. And so I got the great opportunity to work collaboratively with them and, uh, and now have, you know, the co-inventor um, credentials on a couple of patents that we filed for some of the work that we did uh, at the Hartford to, to build some predictive models to identify insurance fraud. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's what sort of, you know, got me really focused and interested in sort of the next phase, which took more of a turn towards technology. Okay, I got to ask, can you talk about what is a predictive model for insurance fraud in that sort of space? Is it like weight, height? I don't know, but I'm like, in my mind, I'm like going, how can you predict that type of insurance fraud? Yeah, we we actually spent a lot of time working specifically on uh, on text mining uh, and text analytics. So for... um, up until that point, a lot of most analytic models, even today, really are focused on you know discrete data and the stuff that you can find, uh, you know, in a spreadsheet format in a in a table somewhere, right, in a database. Um, and so the for insurance in particular, predictive modeling with that kind of data is a little more challenging. And I, I like to give this sort of comparison. Most people are familiar with predictive models that have been deployed for um, credit card transactions, for example, to detect fraud very successfully for many years. That's effective for a bunch of reasons. One of them is that credit card data uh, is very high volume. There's lots and lots and lots of transactions and pretty substantial amount of attempted fraud uh, to, to look at. The data is very consistent across the industry so the same data fields are captured by all the merchants and you know all the issuing banks and and um, you know it's, it's very consistent from organization to organization, um, and you know the quality of that data is is quite good. You know if fraud has occurred because either you caught it or if you didn't catch it, the customer usually calls and says, "Hey, there was fraud on my credit card." Right. So the known uh, set of data and the known outcomes is very strong. Um, Insurance has an opposite situation in almost every category. 
So the data uh, is not consistent. Every company kind of does it their own way. Um, the volume might be big, but the known fraud, um, either you've caught it or maybe you missed it and it was successful. So you've got you know, a set of data that includes actual frauds that were missed. And so it's harder to build an accurate predictive model that way. And so one of the solutions that we came to was we really need to leverage more data and some of the best information is in the notes and in the data, in the text fields, right? So the description of the loss that the adjuster enters when they're talking to the claimant on the phone or uh, the, the medical doctor's notes or you know information like that. And so we were able to build some techniques where we could extract the useful information out of those text fields and then put those into our predictive model. And that's what allowed us to uh, to really do a, a better job in identifying the high-risk claims that needed to be investigated. So um, that was very successful for us and, and helped increase the volume of referrals into our SIU and, and uh, increase the uh, the impact that the investigative team was able to have. Yeah, I'm getting like this kind of minority report-ish feeling of, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, but in a different sort of way. So, and, yeah. you know, and I just recorded a podcast that will drop after yours, but the idea that people are like, well, I paid into it. Did you get that a lot? Like I paid into it. I'm just getting what I got back. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. The, um, so the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud actually does some research and they publish um, what they call the Faces of Fraud. Uh, and it's a, it's a research report and survey. Uh, and one of the things that they measure in that report is just the consumer sentiment towards insurance fraud. And, you know, over the years and years that they've been doing this survey, we've seen a steady decrease in, uh, you know, in people's honesty level when it comes to reporting insurance claims. And so some of the anecdotal feedback in those surveys is, you know, yeah, the, the big, you know, insurance companies, deep pockets, lots of money, and I'm paying these premiums, you know, all the time. And so when it comes time to file a claim, you know, either a completely fraudulent one or, um, you know, one that may be inflated, um, people will uh, will find a way to rationalize and justify that and say, you know, I've been paying this money all these years and, and I deserve it, right? And um, that's not really the way insurance works. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, they're, they're uh, the actuaries have figured out the math to determine what premium they need to charge to cover the risk. And uh, there's certainly people who have legitimate losses that deserve those benefits. And that's, you know, that's what I, I think the point in my career when I got really passionate about uh, about this line of work is in those disability cases, we did a lot of investigations. Uh, and I'd say the majority of those had an outcome where we we validated the claim. The person is truly disabled and they need and deserve these benefits and they're going to keep getting paid. Um, there were, of course, a significant number where the uh, the outcome was the opposite and, and people were committing fraud. Um, and that, you know, that really frustrated me because you saw scenarios where if we had that money, right, and we hadn't spent it in fraudulent payments or had to have all of this infrastructure around fraud investigation, we can use those resources to provide, you know, better benefits to the legitimate claimants, right, and provide vocational rehab services and retraining and, you know, other types of, of capabilities that we offer. We'd love to put some more funding behind those things. Um, and so, you know, these are not victimless crimes, right? So Never. even insurance fraud is, is not a victimless crime. Um, so in, in, um, Maybe if people thought, granted, these people don't think this way, but because I think that um, 
you know, short-term versus long-term, but it's like, if they could see that, you know, by cheating the company, the government, whatever insurance company out of the money, it's more money we have to pay in taxes or insurance payments just to do the right thing for the people that really truly are damaged or affected by something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The um, the, the coalition insurance fraud in their research estimates that you know we all pay several hundred dollars more in insurance premiums every year just to cover the cost of fraud, and yeah. so it's really hurting everybody. So we're all paying the penalty, um, you know, as a result of that. But yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, it's really frustrating. In my um, my free time, uh, I also serve uh, on the board of directors for a nonprofit, which is the Identity Theft Resource Center. And uh, the ITRC uh, provides uh, free services to victims of identity theft. They can call the uh, the toll-free call center there or use uh, their online chat services and talk to um, an expert that can help them remediate their situation if they've been the victim of identity theft. And so um, they also do a lot of research around the data breaches and, and victims. Um, and so what people don't often realize, they, they focus a lot on the financial impact of identity theft, right? So we all know, you know, somebody stole money out of my bank account or, you know, opened a new, you know, loan in my name and affected my credit and all of those things are true. Um, but what they don't often sort of focus on is the, the non-financial impact. And so, um, you know, one of the, the big takeaways from their research um, is that, you know, a significant portion of people, uh, you know, feel uh, more vulnerable, victimized, but, you know, very large percent, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a very large percentage of people um, will have trouble maintaining their housing, making their rent payments, right, because of, of these financial costs. Uh, but 10% of the respondents to their survey indicated that they felt suicidal because oh, yeah. of their, their uh, identity theft scenario. And so it has um, real, you know, medical, uh, physiological, psychological impact on these people. And, and uh, a lot of folks don't realize that the re-victimization rate for identity theft is much higher than most other crimes. So if it's happened to you once, uh, there's a very strong chance that it will happen to you multiple times and you feel like you can't get away from it, right? And and that becomes a very desperate situation for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I used to joke when my mom was alive, she couldn't have a computer because I, I was very concerned that, you know, she'd get on some list and yeah. So, um, and I like, did you ever think of going into law enforcement? <laughs> I did. Um, I, I I thought I probably would at one point in my career. And uh, when I went to grad school, I was uh, I was with uh, in my classes a number of folks that were in law enforcement, and they were aggressively recruiting me to to try to jump the fence into that space. Um, and I, I thought about it long and hard, but um, the reality for me was. Um, you know, I was very interested in federal law enforcement opportunities in particular, um, but I had already really established myself in the commercial space and, you know, was having kind of a good career progression in the, in the insurance job that I was in and uh, and the money was pretty good. And so, you know, when I looked at the comparison of, well, I probably have to go backwards from a, a compensation standpoint, um, you know, I wasn't ready to do that. I had, you know, met somebody who was interested in starting a family, wanted to settle down and sort of moving all over the country was uh, was not in the cards for me at the time. So um, it's one of the things that I I, uh, I would say that I do sometimes regret 
um, maybe earlier in, in my career path, not exploring that more aggressively and having the opportunity to, to um, uh, and the honor really to, uh, to be in law enforcement. Um, but, you know, I, I like to think I've made up for it throughout my career and in, uh, in my contributions and in, in helping them with what they do. And so, um, so yeah, it is, it is something I, I do think about to this day uh, quite a bit. Well, that's interesting. And you are giving back by doing that Identity Theft Resource Center. And then you hit on it briefly about mentoring. And we've talked about this before. James is very active on LinkedIn and um, you do not use it as a billboard. You use it as helpful. That's my little thing this year is like stop using LinkedIn as a billboard just to, you know, get accolades, but to teach. And you're very, very thoughtful and responsive to that. But you clearly value mentoring like You've been on the receiving end and you've been on the giving end. So what can you tell to someone who's a mentee or someone who wants to be a mentor? Yeah, it's it's really one of my favorite things. I uh, I love to teach. I uh, once I, I completed my master's program, I actually went back and started teaching online um, and Utica's um, uh, fraud management programs, uh, and that was one of the favorite sort of uh, uh, times in my career. I was you know getting a chance to to actually teach people um, and getting getting paid to do it even right, which was which was great. Um, Unfortunately, you know, I, I haven't been able to keep on doing that uh, just based on the time commitment. Well, I, you know, I also have another job to do. And so um, but I would like to get back to that at some point. And, and that's, um, that's part of my plan long term is to is to spend more time uh, formally uh, teaching folks in, in the next generation of fraud fighters. Um, but the mentorship is uh, is really important to me. And that's as I moved into the consulting space. Uh, has really been one of the best things for me about consulting is that we tend to hire a lot of very junior people. We hire a lot of folks directly out of university and, you know, we put them in as consultants and, you know, a lot of them don't, don't have a lot of experience in this space, right? They haven't done this work before, done investigations before. And so for those of us that have been around a while, it presents this tremendous opportunity for you to share this you know, wealth of knowledge that you've developed over you know, 20 plus years of doing this. Um, and it's so wonderful to see uh, the new generation so passionate about it, right? And they're, they're very interested in learning about that, you know, that, that work. And, um, and I know the folks that I've worked with have always really appreciated, um, you know, hearing from some of us that have been around for a while. And so, um, so that's been one of the most rewarding parts of, of my consulting career is, is really providing some mentorship to the, the new generation. Um, I would, I would make some recommendations. Uh, you mentioned LinkedIn, you know, I love to share. <laughs> and so I try to, you know, I put stuff out there and uh, I do a lot of public speaking, you know, webinars, uh, social media content and things like that to try to, uh, you know, improve the broader um, fraud risk management community, essentially. Um, and so I would encourage people that are, are looking for a mentor to, you know, reach out to some of those people that they see that are, are doing those things. Um, social media is a great place to be able to do that pretty easily. Uh, and I could say I've been pleased that I've had a number of people that have reached out to me and connected with me and said, hey, you know, I'd love to just pick your brain or get your advice or um, I'm thinking about making a career change. Do you have some suggestions? Um, you know, one of my um, one of my other favorite things I love to do back to your question about law enforcement is 
uh, I've helped a number of folks as they look to transition out of law enforcement. So they're getting ready to retire, or they're they're moving out, and so when I get into the uh, the commercial sector, and you know understand how their skill set and their experience will translate into a job in you know commercial uh, investigations or or uh, security type roles, and so um, that's something else that you know I'm always happy to do to try to support people uh, in their career and. You know, to your point, it's, you know, not being a, a billboard or always having your sales shtick, you know, and, and you know, there, of course, there needs to be some of that. Right. And, and that's fair. But um, but really, it's more about karma. Right. And, you know, you put it out there and you give it, you know, as much as you can. And then eventually things will come back to you. And, and I'm a firm believer in that. And uh, and I've experienced that throughout my career. So it's um to me, that's some of the most fun, right? As we get the chance to to collaborate and and you know work with groups of people, especially across multiple generations, um, that, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So, what are some regular resources that you like rely on to put out this great content? Do you have like journals? You have books? You said you weren't a big podcast listener. We're going to change that for you. Um, <laughs> but like, what are some resources that you can share with the fraudish audience that you think would be helpful? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest really is, you know, make best use of LinkedIn. Uh, I think, you know, there's a ton of great content. There's a lot of people who are sharing really great information, Um, you know, just following them. Even if you're not directly connected, you can follow people, right, and see what they post. And so um, there's a a few, for example, I've been looking at a lot recently. Um, David Maiman, for example, um, who you may know is at Georgia State. And he's doing a lot of research around check fraud and monitoring the dark web for all of that type of activity. And he's, I I mean, just constantly posting great examples uh, with the end. He's really good. He's much better at this than I am at posting uh, photos and video content. And so, you know, it's redacted, but, you know, it gives you a good, really good feel and understanding of what's happening in that space. And, um, you know, if you told me that in 2023, one of our biggest, you know, uh, financial services fraud challenges would be check fraud, uh, I would have thought, you know, you were joking, but um, but that's turned out to be the case. And so um, he's, I think, a great example of somebody that can, you know, give you some real good tactical information uh, and shares that openly. Um, but there's a ton of folks that you can, you know, just just search through some of the fraud content that's there. There's also a bunch of, um, of fraud-related groups on LinkedIn as well that you can join and, and participate in the, in the dialogue and the conversation. Um, I know, um, Kelly, that, that you uh, have been an active participant with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners for a long time, and, uh, and I have as well. And so that's, a, that's another great group uh, to network with, join your local chapter, you know, go to some meetings. Uh, most of the chapters now have some uh, some online forums or, or a way to connect virtually. Um, so all of that is, you know, is really great stuff. And um, I, I still enjoy an old fashioned conference. If you can go in person and, you know, actually see people and, and presenters, um, you know, I think that's uh, that's a great way to uh, to connect with other folks in the industry. Um the, the last recommendation I'll give, and I think the thing that's really done the most for my career, more than anything else, um, more than, you know, having uh, patents, more than getting a graduate degree, more than a certification, has been public speaking. And so if you have an interest, if you have a willingness uh, if you're not, you know, completely terrified of, of uh, getting up in front of a group of people 
or even doing that virtually, I strongly encourage people to take on uh, the opportunity to do some public speaking and, and do some presentations. And you can start small, do a, an internal kind of in-service training, you know, for some people in, in your office or uh, or at your company. Um, but, you know, there's so many great opportunities. Everybody's looking for content. Right, all these conferences and and publications, uh, you know, you can write an article. If you don't like speaking in public, then you know, publish some content and, and get an article in a journal or or an online magazine. Um, just I encourage people to to participate in sort of this anti fraud community that we have and, and share their knowledge. And I think that for me has been um, very rewarding because you're you know your name gets out there, right? And people know who you are, and then they come to you. And so that's been uh, that's been great. I love going to a conference and have someone say, "Oh, I follow your stuff on LinkedIn, or I saw your article, or you know, I watched your webinar." And, and so, um, you know, especially in this sort of pandemic. Uh, virtual environment that we've been in, you do this stuff and you don't always know, you know, who's reading it or who's seeing it or how many people are, are actually uh, taking advantage of it. So it's always nice to uh, to get that feedback. But I I, um, I encourage people to look for any opportunity that you have to, to really participate uh, in the community. Yeah. And I public speaking, you know, changed my career. Um, I joined the National Speakers Association and learned, I couldn't believe that people actually got paid to speak. And that's what I do these days. And um, my mom used to joke when she found out I was speaking for a living, people pay you like you're so, so much of an introvert because growing up, I'd sit in the corner and I'd read a book. But when you find that topic that you are so passionate about, you just light up a room. You absolutely light up a room and you connect people. I call myself the fraud connector because, um, and I'm, I'm happy to help people like that's, and I know that from you. I mean, I remember I have notes in my file from a phone call that we took when, I, and I remember this, I was sitting in the car at my kid's high school and you and I were talking. So um, reach out to people, like absolutely reach out to people. So, yeah, and we, we all, um, human beings in general like to talk about themselves, right? And so, you know, you'll often find um, that people are very willing to share, you know, their background if somebody would just ask. And so whether that's, um, you know, investigative advice or career advice or uh, whatever it's about, um, most people, I, I have had, I don't think I've had any interactions, frankly, where people have said no, or I don't want to talk to you, or, you know, I'm not going to help you. Um, every time that I've uh, I've reached out to do that with someone, they've always been very gracious. And so um, I try to pay that forward and, and do it for others when they reach out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have kids and I won't ask ages or anything, but um, just this last weekend, I rewatched the movie Tower Heist and I forgot how much I liked it. Did you ever watch Tower Heist? I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, it's it's clever. I, you guys, I'm going to put the link for the trailer in the show notes because I'm adding it to my fraud and pop culture. Um, and it's um, it's about a Ponzi scheme and everything like that. But are there any other like shows that you like or movies that kind of like your kids are like, you do that, dad? Like, <laughs> you know, that your kids can kind of relate to that show what you do. Yeah, I, you know, it's a good question. I think. Um... I'm trying to remember if we've watched something recently that that covers that. Um, I don't think I've watched anything with the kids quite yet. Um, one 
I would I would recommend to listeners that uh, is not kid friendly, <laughs> but is uh, is entertaining. Um, is about the life of John McAfee. Um, oh yeah, the, the Gringo uh, is the name. It's a documentary, and uh, it's been on uh, Netflix and, and some of the other streaming services, and it kind of moves around. So you have to check and see where you can find it now. But um, fascinating story and uh you know his, his life has just you know t- taken so many crazy turns um but really just every chapter of the documentary you say to yourself wow this can't get any more bizarre and then it does <laughs> the very next chapter is twice as crazy um so that one i uh i think is is great and there's you know lots of fraud uh <laughs> in that one as well so that, that's what i can recommend okay any others tv shows or yeah, no, not really. I'm not much for TV, to be honest. I, yeah, um, I'm not a big TV. I I stream, but I hardly. No, I feel like TV. with the family, I end up paying for you know all these uh, various streaming services, but um, I don't spend a whole lot of time watching them myself. Yeah, yeah. So I just and it's fun teaching the fraud and pop culture class because there's always suggestions, and then like I had forgotten about Tower Heist, and there is one, and I think it's in the trailer at the end where he's just like you people have to work for your living. I don't have to. And it's just like, and it's about a Ponzi scheme and it's good. It's I'm adding it to the, I'm adding it to the list of things. So um, what is something I haven't asked you that you want to get out to the fraud audience? Um, I, I want to talk just for a minute about technology. Um, so I, I, the sort of the next chapter of my career after the insurance world was moving to, uh, to a company called SAS. Um, they're a business analytics uh, software company, and I had the uh, the good fortune uh, to end up being the head of product management for the fraud and security intelligence division at SAS. And so we were using all kinds of advanced analytics and data science to help organizations detect fraud and money laundering and sort of any any type of bad behavior. And so that's really uh, become another passion of mine is helping organizations leverage uh, analytics and technology in their approach to addressing fraud. And so, um, you know, I I, uh, I was at SAS for 10 years uh, and I left there about three years ago. So it's been 13 years now since uh, I first joined them. It, you know, I still encounter organizations that don't know how to do it, struggle with it, can't figure out the technology, right? And so, um, you know, almost a decade and a half later, um, you know, that continues to be a big challenge for people. And so um, we, organizations that can master that and do that successfully, I mean, it's a tremendous multiplier, right? Force multiplier. And so uh, you hear some great examples and some great stories of organizations that have been able to do that well. Um, but I know a, a lot of folks still struggle with that. And one of the things that's happened in recent years is the, the uh, fraud technology or fraud tech, as I call it, the fraud tech startup market is just on fire, right? There's all these new companies that are entering the space every week. And so uh, if you're a buyer, the market's very confusing, right? There's lots of companies out there. They all claim they have magic AI that will you know, solve the fraud problem for you. Um, and so really understanding what they do, how do they compare against each other, and then figuring out how you would integrate them into your own programs uh, is a daunting task. And so that's something that I've been spending a lot of time kind of helping some clients with, you know, 
figuring that out, right? And so having worked as a, a buyer of that technology when I was in the insurance world and, and you know, was acquiring those types of solutions, and then having worked for a software company where I was selling and marketing those types of tools and implementing them for customers, uh, and now I, I'm a consultant where I'm helping them uh, evaluate that. And, and so... Um, it's sort of a, a unique combination of experience where, you know, I've kind of been on both sides of the table now and I have those different perspectives. So I think that's, you know, something that's been a really hot topic in the conversations that I've been having with folks you know, over the last couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many tools out there that for all different things, good and bad, um, you know, but, uh, I would love to actually do like a data science certificate just because I think it's so incredibly powerful, even though I deal with more businesses on, you know, main street that can't afford AI and really they just need to open their bank statements. (laughs) But um, I also think that big businesses are kind of a leading indicator of what's coming up. So if you're paying attention to the fraud tech, eventually it will trickle down. It will. And and some of the approaches that even the more advanced technology firms use, you can replicate and do them kind of manually in Excel or, in, you know, very low cost technical software. Right. And so there are some things that you can do to still get some of those advantages, even if you are a small organization and you don't have to spend millions of dollars on, uh, on the latest and greatest technologies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No d- data science. And I mean, I never really used Benford's law, but I always thought it was amazing. Like, you know, and that's like, you know, it's kind of like a horse and buggy these days, isn't it? (laughs) You know, it is, but it still works. (laughs) So, you know, it's one of those things that um, I don't think is ever going to go away. Um, But yeah, it's on the technology front. I mean, the other thing that's really sort of fascinating to watch now is, uh, you know, chat GPT and all, you know, all these new AIs, right, that are, are coming out and hitting the market. And so, you know, I just read an article this week that um, the chat GPT-3 was able to successfully pass the uh, the final exam uh, at the Wharton MBA program. Uh, and so, you know, it makes you scratch your head and say, well, I think it got a B or a B minus uh, on, on the test. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you think about what we're seeing is the bad guys are using all of these technologies, right? So they're yeah. using those natural language generation capabilities to write better phishing emails, for example, right? And so the old days of having you know lots of spelling errors and obvious you know problems and being able to detect those pretty easily are all going to go away because the quality of those are going to go through the roof now. And so I think about you know combining that capability with deep fake technology. Right. And, you know, you may end up talking to somebody that sounds like it's a real person and, you know, and it's somebody even maybe, you know, um, you know, and it's really a chat bot with a deep fake layer on top of it. And so that to me is is really fascinating when I think about where we're going over the next few years. Uh, it's going to make our lives a lot more challenging, but uh, also the reason why we need so many great people uh, in the anti-fraud space. Right. In order to tackle these challenges. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the final question is, what is the last thing you Googled before you got on this call? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I probably have to look it up. Um, I think <laughs> I've I, got I like think... a dozen tabs open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I, I actually looked you up on LinkedIn so I could remember when the first time was that we met. So uh, which okay. was back in 2013. So it was 10 years ago. 
Yeah. And that's what my kids were in high school. So that's, yeah. Uh-huh. I was like, I remember talking to you then. Thank you so much, James. Um, I will put some links in the show notes, obviously, and connect with James on LinkedIn if you aren't already connected, because truly he, not only does he give great content, he's connected to other people that give great content. So thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me. doing outros it seems this year. I consider myself to be so lucky to be able to chat with such interesting and giving fraud fighting professionals and then I pay it forward by having you guys being able to sit in and listen. I will put a link in the show notes to the Faces of Fraud in the Identity Theft Resource Center. After listening to James, any chance you are going to put in to speak at any events this year? Speaking really changed my career for the better on so many different levels. Have a great week. Read a book, listen to a podcast, and reach out to a connection. Mm -hmm.